Right, good morning again. We shall be in the book of First Samuel 2 this morning. I thought that that would help us to get things settled and prepare us for the testimony of Christ that's coming up in the next few chapters, of course, all the way to Second Samuel, the book of Christ, lots of gospel nuggets. I don't know why people can't find them and say, oh, we are making up things, bless you, bro. There's just way too much gospel nuggets than we have time to glean. <laughs> but before we multiply words, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this time to go into word, to learn about the things that really matter, the things of our salvation, the things of Christ, the things of our passing from the judgment of condemnation to the judgment of justification. We thank you for the word that you've recorded for us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who illuminates the scriptures to us. And I pray that he helps me to speak that which is true and faithful and also for your people to hear that which is true and faithful. We honor you for all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The preaching of the gospel is very important, it's needful, and as Apostle Paul said, he was laboring and suffering for the sake of the elect. That is why we preach the gospel, it is for the sake of the elect, that by the preaching of the gospel, God calls his people to himself. He calls his people home, as it were. And then there's another dimension also that comes to the matter of why we preach the gospel. The gospel is the love letter from home. That is God's love letter to his people who are in the world to remind them of home that they do not belong here. So we constantly need to be reminded that we do not belong here. And so gospel preaching is one of the means, if not the means that God uses to constantly remind us and teach us of the spiritual realities of home. This is what home is like. It is like Christ Jesus. And it is about Christ Jesus. It is about the glory of Christ as he redeemed all his people to himself or redeemed all his people to God. So much of how the gospel is being presented is false because it's not being presented as something that already happened, that is already complete. It is being presented as something that we have to roll up our sleeves to make these spiritual realities happen to us by our diligence. And unfortunately, that comes from the pen or pens and writing messages 
or very educated theologians, preachers, reformed preachers even, who still do not have a clue of what the message is all about. So may God help us with the understanding of the message. And with that, let's go to our text of consideration, 1 Samuel 2, verse 1 to 10. And good morning to one and all. If you are joining us, we are in 1 Samuel 2, verse 1 to 10. The text says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are gathered with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings law and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the law of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And that's the word of the Lord. And for a title, if you were breaking this message into different pieces, you could end up with five different messages. But I thought to take the larger overview of the gospel, and I titled the message, The Christology of Hannah's Prayer. The Christology of Hannah's Prayer. I'm sorry, I only have one title. <laughs> We know that Hannah is a favorite of many. People just love the vibes that she brings. They think they identify with her situation and that she in many ways was able to verbalize what they cannot. It seems she speaks or spoke for many. And in the same class of women are Ruth and Esther. 
These characters are idolized to a fault. Just as the Proverbs 31 woman. And I say to a fault because people end up thinking this is the ideal of being a godly woman. But that is not true. The Bible does not anywhere speak of the saints being conformed to the image of Old Testament saints, no matter their exploits. The Bible, the New Testament, speaks of being conformed to the image of Christ. We are being conformed to the image of the one person, Christ Jesus, the image bearer of God. So Christ is the template of all things good and righteous. Thus, if we should really understand Hannah and a petition, even the other sisters, Esther and Ruth, Esther's petition to King Ashwaras, King Atasexis, we have to bring a Christological view to their stories. We have to bring the lens of Christ. And as always, I'm going to argue that if we do not find a Christological theme to a text, to a scripture, to a story, then God has not opened the text to us. And such has been much of what has been preached so far from many pulpits and does not make us wise unto salvation, as the writer of Hebrews would say. If any person purports to be a gospel preacher, they have to help you to be wise in the matter of Christ. They have to help you understand the gospel better. By God's grace. So we've learned that Hannah was married to Elkanah, a Levite, who lived in the mountains of Ephraim. And this man had two wives, Hannah being the first wife, and Penina the second. And God had constrained Hannah from having children, and yet had abundantly given children to Penina, yeah, but Hannah was much loved by her husband Elkanah and he had showered her with much love, with more love and gifts than his second wife, which thing caused Penina to despise her and this ignited a serious rivalry. So Penny Penny, as I called her last time, <laughs> took every opportunity to despise Hannah, to mock and scorn her to shame because of her inability to conceive and inability that was imposed on her 
by God. It had nothing to do with the weakness of her biology. It was a divine imposed inability. And in the matter of speaking as men, a delay as it were. But there's never a delay in the matter of God's working. Everything happens in his appointed time. And this left Hannah in a very sorrowful, sad state of spirit. Barrenness was something that was looked down upon in this time and culture, even considered a curse from God. And Hannah, as the first wife, should have already born a son for Elkanah to carry the family name as we had the story of Judah and Tamar and the saga with it. So a son was needed in the matter of carrying the family name and also control the inheritance. And Penny Penny had appeared as the second wife to try and raise children to Elkanah, but for a gospel witness, for a gospel testimony. And so Hannah finding no comfort, finding no relief, finding no solution, had decided to pour out her spirit to the Lord God. She did not go to the prosperity gospel preachers and get her some anointing oil <laughs> and some anointed water to help her with the barrenness. She went to the Lord God. She made a petition for a male son. And she said, if only the Lord would grant her this son, then she would dedicate him back to God for the rest of his life. First Samuel 1, 10 and 11. And she was in bitterness of soul, that is Hannah, and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O oh Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. In the granting of this male son would see her reproach from Penny Penny being taken away. She had a reproach over her that could only be taken away in God granting her this male child. And this son would be born, Samuel would be a Nazarite, and no razor would come upon his head. This son would not go to the barbershop. He would not go to the barbershop. Why? Exodus 20. 25. Exodus 20, 25, Moses says, or God says, 
If you make me an altar of stone, you must not build it of stones shaped with tools. For if you use your tool on it, you have defiled it. The altar was in reference to Christ. So, what do barbers do at the barber shop? They use tools. They cut your hair to make you look cute. <laughs> and God says, no. In the matter of Christ, that's a defiling of the altar. I cut my, my hair every week since 1994. And that means I am disqualified from being a Nazarite. <laughs> to cut the hair under the Nazarite vow was then a picture of defining Christ. Christ has no need of improvement. There's nothing that needs to be done to Christ to make him attractive because much of what is called church is busy trying to give Christ a haircut and make him attractive to the world. Christ is complete in himself. And so any attempt to improve on Jesus is a subtraction, a defiling and an abomination. So God wanted his altar to be built without the tools of man so that Christ is not attractive to men. Isaiah 53 says this about Christ. Verse 2 and 3. And of course, it opens with, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 2 and 3, Isaiah 53 says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. This is why the Nazarite vow commanded for his hair not to be cut. God did not want Jesus to be a Tom Cruise or to appear on the front page of the Time magazine as the man of the year. He wanted his Christ to be approached only because of God's revelation. To be approached only by faith and not because of his looks. And we know that when Delilah cut the hair of Samson who was another Nazarite, he lost his power. He lost his strength. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. But the barrenness of Hannah, 
was not because she had any problems with her reproductive system. Not at all. As Sarah before, God had constrained her to not conceive for the time being for the sake of preaching the gospel. She must join the house of the barren. Hannah must join the house of the seemingly barren. The house of the desolate, the house of Christ, the house of the New Testament. The house that seems to be barren of godly and righteous children. How shall God ever have righteous children, seeing that all are born in the house of Adam. His house is desolate. The house of Christ is desolate of righteous people. They are all born seemingly in the house of Hagar and Penina. It seems then that Christ's house was hopelessly desolate. Hannah and Sarah must have a child who comes as a matter of promise, even Christ Jesus. The child who comes as a matter of promise then was looking forward to Christ Jesus, who in the fullness of time would be born through the conception of the Holy Spirit. And so as we observed Samson, the Nazarite, was born to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel, the Nazarite, will be born to deliver Israel from her enemies. And the Christ also, the Nazarite, would be born to do it. We shall call his name Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. So their sins are the enemies. Their sins are the enemies. So the wrestling between Israel and her enemies were pictures of God's people's own wrestling with sin. Israel never had a permanent defeat of their enemies. Their enemies were always strengthened by God himself. God strengthened the hands of Israel's enemies. And then God would raise a person to deliver them from their enemies, from the trouble that he brought. So God was involved in the bringing of trouble and also the deliverance from trouble. And so our seemingly apparent victories we sin are only temporary. Don't trust in your victory over sin. It's temporary. Sooner or later, we will be visited or we will be revisited with a new sin or an old sin. Why? So that we may be reminded that sin takes more than resolutions to defeat. It requires a Nazarite 
by the name of Jesus to deliver us from, and that is what the gospel is declaring to us, that this Jesus, by his one offering of himself, perfected forever the sanctified, the elect. He put sin away. He made an end to the purification of sin. The matter of your justification, your salvation before God is an accomplished reality. It's already done. It's so done that there's nothing that you can do to undo it. Not even your sin can undo it. And this is the point that really frustrates me when I hear these Reformed preachers, when it comes to the matter of the gospel, they just cannot say salvation is actually done by Christ and stop there and put a period there. They can't. They want to drag you into places that you are not able to do anything about. So Penina and her seeming fruitfulness was preaching the matter of the covenant of the law because the law seems to make sinners righteous to their way of thinking. Many of the Jews in the time of Jesus, they thought were righteous people. They thought they were righteous. Israel thought themselves righteous than all the heathen nations around them just because they were under the law. So Penny Penny's mocking of Hannah and the threats that she made were reminiscent of the mocking of Sarah by Hagar. And that for making a distinction between the covenant of the law and the covenant of grace, the testament that is in the blood of Christ. Those who call themselves reformed do not make a distinction between the old covenant of Mount Sinai and that of the New Testament, they do not make a distinction between the houses of Hagar and Sarah, of Hannah and Penina. They don't make a distinction. They say they're the same house. They claim, according to their covenantalism, that Mount Sinai that is Moses, that is the law, was part of the larger covenant of redemption and thus continues beyond Mount Calvary. It continues to bind the conscience of God's people beyond Mount Calvary. But that's not true. The house of Hagar is not the same as the house of Sarah. They do not coexist peacefully. They don't. And that is why God said, Abraham, listen to your wife. Kick that woman out. You never hear reformed preachers 
say that about the kicking out of Hagar. They always tried to get Hagar back in the house. But over and over, in both the new and the old, we see the old covenant as that which causes trouble for God's people. It is the covenant represented by Hagar and Penina, also represented by Israel's 430 years of bondage in Egypt and many other pictures that we have seen in our gospel explanation from the Old Testament. We have a lot of things to say today, a lot of mercy. You will not even think it's coming from this text. <laughs> but it's important, it's needful. But the failure to distinguish between the Old Covenant from the New Testament is a serious gospel error. Because the Bible tells us that the old covenant was passing away and was weak and unprofitable to a sinner. Thus, it had to be retired as God typologically anticipated in the forbidding of Moses from crossing into the promised land, Moses, a Levite, a mediator of the covenant of the law. As the Levites were supposed to retire at 50 years old, retire from ministry, even as God foreshadowed. He covered Moses and Elijah by the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration and said, Listen to Moses. No, he said, <laughs> this is my beloved son with whom or in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Listen to him. As in contrast to listening to Moses, because up to this point, Israel is listening to Moses. God says, no, the time has come for you to listen to my son, hear his words, because in him, God will make and has made his final speech. And in him, he has turned off the mic of Moses. Mike, Moses does not have a microphone anymore. It's been turned off. Okay? Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So you see, you have a son who is the heir of all things. That is the obsession of the Old Testament with having a son. They're looking for a son who is in the picture of Christ to be heir 
And Christ is the fulfillment of that son who is the heir of all things. But God has spoken through one who is son. That is the direct translation. God has spoken to us in one who is son, who has the title of son, who has the right of inheritance. Moses is not the son of God. As Christ is the son of God. So Moses has no inheritance rights. He is a servant in God's house. So you cannot get blessing from God through the servant who is Moses. You get only blessing through the son. Because the son alone has eternal title to all things God. So the Bible says we have been made co-heirs with Christ, not with Moses. So Jesus is God's final speech. Because in him, all things consist, all things hold. And in him, we are complete. And he holds all things by the word of his power. Even your salvation is held together by him. He holds all things, both physical and spiritual things, by the word of his power. So the Lord God came and blessed Hannah's womb, and she conceived and bore Samuel. And Samuel was given to Eli the high priest that he may minister to God as soon as he had been wind, and yet this was in contravention of the law of priesthood with regards to the Levites. As I said, Levites were only supposed to enter into the ministry at age 25 and were to serve no longer or no later than 50 years old, according to Numbers 8, verse 23 to 26. And so Samson, sorry, Samuel, as a Levite, seemingly violated this provision. But why? Because his priesthood was an unusual priesthood. It was by an oath a vow to God to serve God forever, that is for all his life, his human life. A priesthood with no retirement, a priesthood that was not by the law of a fleshly commandment in that it went against or contrary to the stipulations of the Levitical priesthood. And that is saying, the priesthood of Samuel mirrored or foreshadowed a much bigger priesthood, the eternal priesthood of the Lord Jesus, which was by a vow by the God who said in Hebrews 7, 20 
and 21. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, the Levitical priesthood were priests not by reason of an oath, but by reason of just being a Levite. <laughs> you just had to be born in the right family. Okay? But he, that is Christ, with an oath, by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ is a priest, high priest, forever. And as long as we have a, an eternal priesthood, our salvation is guaranteed because our salvation is the work of the priesthood. As long as Christ lives, you shall not lose your salvation. The people who say you can lose salvation should not preach. They should not talk about Jesus. They should be given something else to do. Maybe tend a garden, grow flowers, or do something. But they cannot talk about things Jesus because they don't know about this business. Okay? And that to say, the Lord Jesus was the fulfillment of Hannah's vow, the fulfillment of Samuel, because the priesthood of Christ has no end. He ever lives to make intercession, and we shall always have access to God through his priesthood. There's no other way to access God apart from the priesthood of Christ. That's how it works. Now, that was all introduction. <laughs> we go to our text. So in the context of all that God had said, he continued to expand the Christological testimony of Hannah through her poem or her prayer. First Samuel 2, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. To understand this, we have to see the immediate context of Hannah and their celebration. Just as we see the same with the psalmist. But we have to go beyond these people and their present experiences. Because it was the spirit of prophecy. The spirit of Christ that was speaking through them. They did not come up with this. Of their own accord. Or of their own inspiration. The spirit of Christ was prophesying of the sufferings, the triumph, and the rejoicing of Christ. So Hannah says, my heart rejoices in the Lord, the source of my blessing, the Lord who has removed my reproach, the Christ who suffered to remove our reproach. 
Christ Jesus suffered from man and was treated as a sinner. There was a reproach of man on Christ. There was a reproach on Christ because of our sin. What did the Lord do for you, Hannah? My horn is exalted in the Lord. Horns are used by animals for defense and attack. And we see a lot of that in the animal kingdom. So a horn is a symbol of strength. And Job, because of his own sufferings, said this of his horn. In Job 16, 15, I have sawed sackcloth upon my skin and defiled my horn in the dust. That's Job 16, 15. I have defiled my horn in the dust. And so Hannah had similarly and metaphorically done the same with her own horn. Strength had been taken away from her because of the shame of her barrenness. As strength had been taken away from Job by reason of his sickness and losses. So her horn, her source of power, her source of strength, of pride, was now in the Lord, not in what she possessed, not in herself or anything. And she said, I smile at my enemies, not because she loves them, but because she rejoices in God's salvation. But who are the enemies in view? For Hannah, immediately, it's Penina. In the gospel sense, it was the law that had become the law's enemy. The law condemned Jesus because of our sin. The law had become our enemy because of sin. And in Jesus joining himself to our condemnation, he also was treated the same. In many ways, Hannah is rejoicing in a kind of resurrection. The resurrection of her power. The resurrection of the strength of her horn. And this language of victory was looking to the rejoicing of the Lord after he had made an end to the purification of sin. Because, as I said, many mocked him as a liar, mocked him as a blasphemer, forsaken of God. And they did not think that he would rise from the dead. They mocked him. The trials of Jesus, they were mocking him. Hannah says, verse 2, No one is holy like the Lord, 
for there's none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. None is holy like the Lord. He alone is holy. Only Christ can truly say that of God. God is unlike anything that he has created. That is the idea of being holy. He is separate from anything that he has ever made. He is God all by himself. And there's no other God besides him worth talking about. God alone is holy. This needs to be told many professing Christians. God alone is holy. Angels are holy. They are separate from the other lower creation. But their holiness is not intrinsic to their nature of being. Angels are still capable of sinning if God does not sovereignly keep them from sinning. The holiness that angels have is mutable. Hence, we have some sinful angels. But we shall never have a sinful God. Not the God of Hannah, not the God of Jesus Christ. So holiness as an attribute is only intrinsic to the eternal God. He alone is holy. Everyone else is called holy in Christ. We are made holy by being possessed by Christ Jesus, by belonging. We are holy by belonging. Our holiness is relational. It's transactional. It's not behavioral. You cannot be made holy by things that you do. Yes, the word can be loosely used as an imperative as an exhortation for the conduct of believers where we are admonished to have holy conversations and that I believe to be saying have conversations about Christ the Holy One and minimize filthy language and talking But we have to understand the boundaries of that. Because people then think they can be made holy by the things that they are doing or have stopped doing. And they end up pushing the boundaries to unacceptable levels of understanding of the matter. And that prompted Paul to say, let's go to Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 20 to 23. Paul says, 
Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ, from the rudiments of the world, from the elementary things of the world, you die to them. Why as though living in the world are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all or which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. <laughs> commandments and doctrines of men. They tell you to do things to be righteous, to be holy. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship, just will worship and humility, false humility, and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. These commandments, doctrines of men, do this, don't touch this. They seem to be righteous. They seem to improve the flesh, but Paul says they do not help the flesh at all. They do not make the flesh better at all. But here is the true believer's holiness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 But of him are you in Christ Jesus. Of him, by his doing, you are in Christ. Who of God is made unto us? Wisdom and righteousness and sanctification, which is holiness and redemption. Christ Jesus is the believer's sanctification. He is the believer's holiness. We have been made holy by the sprinkling of his blood. That's what has made us holy that is what has separated us to God. Anything that does not have the blood of Christ is not holy. In the Old Testament teaching, anything that was set apart to the service of God had to have the blood of the sacrifice sprinkled on it. And once that had happened, you could not use it for ordinary use. All the redeemed are holy, not by reason of the things that they stopped doing. They are holy by reason of the blood that has been sprinkled on their behalf. That is their holiness. So on what is your holiness? It is the blood of Christ. So we have been sanctified, made holy in the sanctified one. Christ is the holy one. We are in Christ. We have been put in the vessel that is holy. And so we are holy by reason of him. Okay? Hannah says, there's no rock like our God. And this metaphor, metaphor this is two, I think verse two. And this metaphor of God as a rock was applied to the Lord Jesus, who is said to be the rock of offense, the stone of stumbling. But the rock here is saying, this is my sure foundation. 
where I have a sure footing. Because no one has ever sunk through a rock. And so none will ever be lost in Christ. No one will ever sink through a rock. It's impossible. It has never happened. The rock is a sure foundation. And that is saying God is that rock. Luke 6, 47 to 49. Luke chapter 6, 47 to 49, Jesus said, Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. Because it was founded on the rock. But he who had and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation. They built the house on sinking sand, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. It, is, it matters what foundation we are building on. Christ is saying in that conversation that he is the rock. And if any man be building a house, let them make sure that it is built on him. Which idea Paul, Apostle Paul, also revisited in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 to 11. Paul said, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So verse 11 is my point. There's no other foundation that you can lay. Christ is the foundation, and he has already been laid. What is Jesus imposing? They're saying everyone has a building project. Everyone has mortar and bricks. Even this morning, building something for salvation. Everybody is involved in some construction project. Some are building on the rock that is Christ, building by faith, as Jude 1 20 says, by building yourselves up in your holy faith, in your most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit. Yet others are building on singing sand without a foundation. And when the stream, the floods of God's judgment come upon it, it shall be revealed its strength. Jesus says, the one that was built 
on the sinking sand immediately fell, and great was the ruin of that house. And that to say, as Jesus was warning, be careful how you are hearing about Christ and what you are calling the gospel, because a lot of people, once you make proper gospel distinctions, they don't want you to do that. They don't want you to make proper gospel distinctions. They don't want you to tell them of the sure foundation. They say all foundations are the same. <laughs> Just get your mortar and get busy. Get your bricks and get busy. Let's be building. There's none like Christ Jesus. There's none who has a gospel like his, a salvation like his, a righteousness like his an eternal life like his, a grace so sovereign and free and secure like his, a glory like his, there's none like Christ. Thus, Hannah says, verse 3, of verse Samuel 2, talk no more so very proudly, let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him, actions are weighed. Penny, penny, talk no more so very proudly. Stop your boasting. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. Penny's mouth, Haggard's mouth of condemnation has been stopped. In the birth of this male child, Samuel, even Isaac in the context of Sarah. When this son is born, then the mouth of Hagar, the mouth of Penny, are stopped. It is only his birth that stops the mouth of condemnation. It was the birth of Christ, the arrival of Christ, and his death that stopped the condemnation of the law. No condemnation, no mocking for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Lord is the God of knowledge, Hannah says, of all knowledge. Men do not create knowledge by diligent study and research. Knowledge is not created. It is only given or is discovered by God to men. God alone is the source of all knowledge, of all that is true. In science, in civil matters, in law, in justice, in medicine, in every aspect of life, God is the source of knowledge. And by him, Hannah says, all actions are weighed. See that it does not say by his law, all actions are weighed. No, God is the standard by which all actions are weighed. Christ is the standard by which all actions are weighed. Because if you remember Jesus, when he showed up, he would come and say, you have had it said. Yeah? Do not commit adultery, but I say, if you just look at a woman 
with lust. You are guilty. Christ is saying, I am the standard of righteousness. He's the ultimate standard of righteousness. In John 5.22, this is what Jesus said. He says, for the Father judges no one. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. By God, all actions are weighed. Christ comes and says, all judgment has has been committed to me, has been committed to the Son, his own words. And of judgment, Paul said in Romans 2.16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, according to my gospel. The judgment of man is now the work not of Moses, but of Christ. Christ is higher than the law. This is what people don't understand. Christ is higher, is better than the law. Why? Because Christ is God. And the law is a list of commandments. (laughs) Jesus is not a list of commandments. Christ is is the Holy One of Israel. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. So he's higher, he's better than the law. But the law cannot mock and condemn those who are in Christ because he was made a curse for them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But what caused the cursing of Christ? It was our sin through the law. The law brought about the curse. Even the one commandment to Adam to not eat from the tree was too much law, was too much commandment for the man of the dust. Let alone 10, let alone 613. You don't want any single commandment to be given you for you to have life with God. You want to break it. 120% guaranteed because we know it already happened with Adam. Adam had the best environment to be the righteous person, but a very simple commandment, and he stumbled and fell. So you don't want any commandment to observe in the matter of eternal things. You are guaranteed to be condemned. One law, again, is too much commandment. I don't know about those who are keeping the ten. So, The mocking of Hannah and Penina were about pronouncing curses. They were mocking the children of the desolate. That's how these stories connect with Christ. A lot of people think the Bible should be written like the book of Romans or the book of Hebrews. No. 
God determined to communicate the same gospel truths through stories that we lived. But these people were living the script that was written by him. They were dramatizing eternal spiritual realities. Okay? First of all, 2 Samuel 2. The bowels of the mighty men are broken and those who stumbled are guarded with strength. The bow was an equipment of war. Firing arrows. Firing missiles. Rockets. The mighty men of the day had many. They had faster and more powerful weapons. Firing to kill. Even now, they are talking about hypersonic missiles that fly so fast they cannot be intercepted by any missile defense shield of any kind. Impossible to stop them. Mighty men. But in the Lord, their bows are broken. (laughs) The Lord has a missile defense shield for anything and everything. 100% intercepted, they have lost strength. Who are the mighty men who have such bows, who have such missiles to destroy? It is sin and law, even the devil, who has made a public spectacle by Christ on the cross, The power of sin is in the law. My beloved, sin in the matter of our existence, of our experience, is the most powerful force that we ever experience here and now. Until we we experience the power of the resurrection of Christ, sin is extremely powerful cannot be stopped by any missile defense shield that you and I could conceive of. But this is how sin works. The power of sin is in the law. They work as a couple to produce death. The law is what gives sin power. Together they are the bow and arrow. That's a couple. Yeah? To condemn and to kill sinners. And only in the Lord is the power of sin and law broken. And those who stumbled for lack of strength to be righteous. Those who are weak and ungodly have been gathered with strength. His strength, his righteousness, his obedience. We have been gathered with strength. Now we can stand before a thrice holy God and not fear condemnation. That's strength. Because none should be able to approach him of their own power and of their own righteousness. But we have been gathered with strength to approach the holy God. Verse 5. Those who were full or those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. 
and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has born seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. Hannah continues to make her comparisons and distinctions. But again, it was God's Spirit speaking, thus speaking for the gospel testimony. Those who were full, those who thought were full, full of righteousness, under the law, have found themselves with nothing, with an empty bag. Have, like the prodigal son, hired themselves out for bread. And the hungry have ceased to hunger. Who are the hungry? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who is that? It is Christ. It is he on the cross who said, I thirst. Do you think Christ was asking for bottled water? Given the moment, the significance of what he came to do, do you actually think that Jesus was looking for bottled water? I thirst for righteousness. That's why I am hung on this accursed tree. Also, I believe that the Lord's last meal was the Passover, the Last Supper. He did not eat anything from that time of his arrest through his trials that went through the night and all the way to the cross about midday and thus was hungry also, physically. But that preaching, bigger spiritual realities. So it is he who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. And Anna says, even the barren has born seven. Samuel was like seven children to Hannah. Even though at this point, Hannah only had one. But later, Hannah will have five more children after Samuel for a good gospel testimony. We'll get to that. But the seven is not speaking to the number of children, but to the completion and perfection that is found in the one son that God has given. <laughs> the completion and perfection of Christ. Christ is the complete son of God. The barren Hannah has given birth to a son. God has granted fully the granting of this son. And now the seemingly barren Hannah, the seemingly barren Christ has born seven, a complete number, a perfect number. Christ has given birth to a perfect church, holy, undefiled, without blemish and above reproach. The church of Christ, 
that he gave birth to is holy, is without blemish. This is how God sees it. You may have a different experience, but this is what God says of the Church of Christ, that it is holy and it is without blemish and it is above reproach. Because the reproach was taken away in the granting of the Son and the dying of the Son, who is Christ Jesus. Genesis 22, 15 to 18. Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, I need you to pay attention again when you're reading that. It says the angel of the Lord. But hear what things the angel actually says. Verse 16, and said, by myself, I've sworn, says the Lord. <laughs> because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. This was the giving of Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah by Abraham. And just at the moment that Abraham was to kill Isaac, the angel came and said, no, 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 don't do that. I've seen that you obey me. Look, in the thicket of the bush there is a ram that was caught. You take that substitutionary atonement, you take that in the place of Isaac and deliver him from the knife. Now that I've seen You've done this thing and did not withheld your son, your only son. They're speaking of Christ. God did not withhold his only son, Christ Jesus. Blessing, I'll bless you and multiplying, I'll multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies in your seed or the nations of the earth shall be blessed because ye have obeyed my voice. This was a blessing not just to Abraham, but to Sarah. Because if Christ is the son of Abraham according to the flesh, according to the promise, he also is the son of Sarah, the barren woman. And that seeing is fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And those many children that God promised to Abraham and Sarah are the children that Christ is now made to God by the redemption that is in his blood. That's the fulfillment of that. These are spiritual children redeemed by Christ. Verse 6 of 1 Samuel 2. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. God kills. It is he who brings death. It is he who said, Adam, in the day that you shall eat of this tree, you shall surely die. That's the first 
statement of death, the Bible, I believe. In the day that you shall eat, you shall surely die. That was the ascendance on Adam, and that was ascendance on Christ. God was pronouncing ascendance on Christ. God is he who brings out of death. It is he who condemns sin, and it is he who brings out of condemnation. It is God who calls men and women to be dead in trespasses and sins, and it is he who makes them alive. It is God who hides truth, and it is God who reveals the truth. Do not miss the sovereignty of what is being said. There's no preacher, there's no person who makes the dead alive. God alone. God is he alone who does these things. He governs all these things. He governs death and life. It is he who brings down to the grave and brings up out of the grave. So there's no God who kills and then another who makes alive. It is all by the same God. The devil cannot kill apart from God. Sickness and disease cannot kill apart from God. Nothing has power to kill apart from God. Nothing has power in itself other than God himself. The waves of the seas have no power apart from God. Because when he takes the power out of them, what happened when the disciples thought they were sinking and Jesus rebuked the waves, they just like a puppy, lie down. So it is God who brings to the grave and he causes resurrection from the grave. It is God who brought Christ to die, and it is he who raised him from the dead. And in this life, you shall also experience seasons of death. God will bring you long. But the good news is, he also is able to bring you up. So when you have been brought low, don't ascribe that to anybody else. It's him. But he always has a good purpose. He will resurrect you again. So know that. Sovereignty is very important to your sanity because life happens. Verse 7. Verse number 2. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings law and lifts up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. The poor are poor not because they, are, they lack planning. God made them poor. The rich are rich not because they are very wise and plan better and work harder and longer. No, it is God who makes them rich. It is God who prospers them even though they don't know it. In other words, there's nothing called a self-made man that 
kind of person does not exist in God's vocabulary and understanding. And because it is God who does all these things, he also can change these things. He brings law and he also lifts up whomever he wants. But when we talk poverty, what we mean in the gospel sense, because 100% of what you're going to hear people talk when they come to this verse, this verse is very popular in religious circles, prosperity gospel circles. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings law and lifts up. What are we really talking about? Who is the poorest man to ever live? Who is the poorest man to ever live? It's Christ. Christ is the poorest of man who has ever lived on planet Earth. Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Paul says this of Christ and trying to help the Philippian church with some attitude adjustment. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a born servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So you begin at verse 6, Christ is God and look at the things that have become of him he made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a born servant. He came in the likeness of lowly men, not in the likeness of angels, but in the likeness of lowly, sinful men, but without sin. And being found in appearance as a man, he did not stop at just being a man. He went some steps down. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. The death of the cross. The cross was the death of the outlaws. Generally, people who did not have Roman citizenship. The God of creation treated as if he did not have citizenship in his own creation. Christ humbling himself. You could not even, you'd be blown away if we were to find any former president or president of the United States working at Beggar King and flipping beggars. Not just for the cameras, but actually doing it every day, getting up at four in the morning and going to Bear King, 
McDonald's and flipping the burgers and washing the toilets and doing all those things every day and still getting paid minimum wage. And if they could do it, they do not come to the same level of Christ because Christ was God. <laughs> Christ was God and he is God. And he humbled himself into poverty. He veiled his glory. He could have made a big show. People make a big show. He's changing the rims of their cars, just the rims, and they're already making a show. Christ Jesus, he could have brought a big show, but he veiled it. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So the whole exercise of the incarnation of Christ was to make Christ poor for our sake. That's what it took for us to be made rich towards God. Ecclesiastes 4. Ecclesiastes 4, 13 and 14. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. What is that saying? Christ Jesus, who is the Logos, the eternal word of God, became poor by way of the incarnation, by way of adding to himself a lowly human nature and suffering the death of condemnation as a lowly servant the lowliest of sevens, Christ, the poor but wise youth, who came out of prison and judgment, born in the manger, born poor in his kingdom, Christ not born at good Samaritan hospital, not born at the Hilton, Paris Hilton Hotel, born poor in his kingdom and became king. This is the Joseph who came from prison and judgment on account of Miss Potiphar and was made king of Egypt and was robbed with much glory and honor. Joseph became king of Egypt not because of the prison Necessarily, because his story did not begin in the prison. His story in the matter of his immediate experience in Egypt was because of the sin of Miss Potiphar. Joseph went in in the place that Miss Potiphar was supposed to go in because she was the sinner. 
She is the one who was left with the garments of Joseph, the righteousness of Christ. But in the wake of the suffering of Joseph in prison, Joseph came out and he was made king of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. The janitor is always the lowliest of servants in any institution. They clean up after people's messes, and yet they are generally looked down upon. They always have a mop and a bucket in their hand to keep things clean, and by that they preach the poverty of Christ in his priesthood, the suffering of death, and the mopping up of your sins and mine by the shedding of his blood. Christ mobbed up our sins by his blood. Christ made lower than the janitor for the sake of cleansing us from our sins. Thus, Isaiah says he was despised and rejected of men. If Christ had been a Tom Cruise, he would not have been rejected of men. If Tom Cruise were to come and become a janitor in his Tom Cruise way, people would be like, oh man, this is so cool. <laughs> but Christ Jesus, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. God made him poor by veiling his glory in the human flesh. So God is he who makes poor and that looking to the incarnation of Christ. That's what poverty is speaking to. And also, the same God who made him poor is he who made him rich. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Speaking of the condescension and humiliation of Christ, the aftermath of the humiliation and condescension of Christ, what happened to him afterwards. Therefore, God has, God also has highly exalted him and given him this how he has been exalted given him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right there, you're already seeing some reference to the Trinity. The Father and the Son are spoken of as separate. The Father has given and exalted the Son and given him the name that is above all names, that in the name of Christ every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, but to the glory of the Father. So this parabolic pattern of lawliness and glory is a theme 
that runs throughout the Bible. I love teaching. I love connecting points. That's why my messages are long. I don't want people who continue to be ignorant about things that God has freely given. God has revealed them. He has freely given them. There's a parabolic pattern of things that run through the Bible. God preached it through the testimony of Job. And I do not like much of what I have heard from many preachers about Job. Why? Because they have not been able to see the Christology of the life of Job. They have largely missed much of God's testimony of Christ in it. They look at Job as a man who needs salvation. Yes, Job needed salvation, but that's not the point of the book. That's not the point of the book at all. They have only seen Job as a prideful man, as a man who thought was sinless. I've seen some preachers who actually get angry at Job. And yet God said of Job that he was right in his claims and himself is the one who said Job was a righteous man, an upright man, a man who feared God, a man who abstained from evil. Yes, Job was born in Adam. We're not arguing that. That was not God's point with raising Job. Why? Because God was preaching or speaking more than the experience of Job. Christ was preaching himself through the humiliation of Job, of this man who was the richest in the East. Essentially, he was the richest at this time, probably in the whole world. So Job was a man of riches. Hear me, someone. He was a man of riches and glory, like Christ, but as a type. And Job went through loneliness, a humiliation, a suffering from that glory, not because of his sin. A humiliation caused by God who maketh poor. And yet Job was made rich again at the end of his ordeal by the same God who made him poor. But after Job had redeemed his friends from death, Job had to redeem his three friends from death. God instructed them to go to Job and God and Job would make a sacrifice on their behalf. And God said, I have accepted Job. I've accepted Job's sacrifice on your behalf that I may not deal with you according to your folly, according to your sin. So you are accepted in the suffering and offering of the God-appointed high priest who is Job in the book of Job. So Job was a prophet and a high priest of God who after being perfected through suffering 
interceded on behalf of his friends and made a sacrifice for their salvation. And also in that process, he recovered his children back to himself. God gave him the number, same number of children that he had before they had been killed by the devil. And that is say, the pattern of Job was the pattern of Christ. The claims of Job of righteousness is Christ speaking and saying, I am righteous. Even though I am condemned, even though I'm suffering, it is not for the sake of my sin, because I have none. I'm suffering for the sake of the redemption of my people and my friends. So Christ is the proper way to read the book of Job. Verse 8, 2 Samuel 2. And if you're looking for those messages on Job, go and look for them on someone audio. We have eight or nine of them. Verse 8 of 1 Samuel. We're almost done. Because we have two more verses to go. Hannah says he raised the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the airship to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. Who are the poor who are raised from the dust? It is Job whom God had made poor and lifted him from the airship. It was Joseph whom God had made poor in prison. And it is Christ Jesus who had been made poor in his incarnation and death. It is Christ whom God raised from the dust of the ground and lifted him up to glory. And it is all who are in Christ, the elect who have been made poor by reason of sin, made poor for lack of righteousness. They have been raised from the airship. All the elect should understand themselves as beggars. And beggars, beggars bring nothing because they have nothing. Like the blind beggar Bartimaeus. Blind and a beggar. That's all you can be if you are blind, a beggar, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, <laughs> which means the son of unclean. If you're a beggar and you're blind, you're going to be unclean because you have no resources to take a shower, you stink. Son of unclean, that's what it means. And in that condition of being a beggar and being blind, you only have one plea of salvation. Son of David, have mercy on me. You can only beg for mercy. 
You cannot talk about your own righteousness, your free will. God gave every man a free will. There's nothing like that. Blind beggar, but me as will never agree with that. So sin was by God's decree for our poverty and also for our glory in Christ. That's how God determined it to happen. And the text says, God raises the poor and the beggar and set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. Do you see? Those are very big words. And make them inherit the throne of glory. Sit them among princes, Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. Paul says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, when we were blind beggars, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together. See that raising us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ. We, the poor beggars, have been raised up together with Christ and have been seated together among the princes, the princes, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See that union with Christ, in Christ, together with Christ. That's union with Christ. God sees us united to Christ in every transaction that Christ has done for us. So it is impossible for Christ to die and resurrect and then not justify the very people that he came to die in that transaction. That is not a good understanding of the gospel. But Hannah says, for the pillars of the earth are the laws, and he has set the word upon them. The earth is set on invisible pillars. This giant mass sits on nothing visible. One of the most astounding things to me. But we know what those pillars are. It is Christ Jesus who holds all things by the word of his power. Christ is he who holds this planet and all the other planets and all the other stars from crashing into one another. Okay? NASA says, oh, they're going to be coming up with some contraption to try and shoot down the asteroids to protect the Earth. The Earth cannot be protected by NASA. The Earth is protected by Christ. (laughs) Because Christ has a much bigger investment on Earth than NASA has. Okay? Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. 
God is he who keeps the feet of his saints from stepping on things that destroyed them, from the deception of false gospels. God keeps us by the power of faith, the power of the faith of Christ. As Paul says, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We need keeping. We need to be guarded. Otherwise, we will not make it to the shore. Our feet are exposed to things that destroy. Our feet are swift to run to sin. I know that to be true of my own feet. And I need God to guard me, to keep me and to deliver me from my own sin and also from the sins of others. Since you have been born or since you were born, a million things that destroy have made an attempt on you to be destroyed. A million things have happened that you are not even aware of. But God says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you, in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. That's Isaiah 54. 71, I actually intend to do a message on that. But I need you to pay attention. It says, and their righteousness is from me. That's the only way why no weapon formed against you to condemn you will prosper. Because you have his righteousness. And the wicked shall be silent in darkness. The wicked are not necessarily people who are immoral. The wicked are people who do not have the righteousness of God. That is the distinction. Anybody who does not have the righteousness of Christ is wicked. doesn't matter how well they behave, no matter how moral they are. Those are the lines. But then God says, we're almost done. People, if you can just hang out with me. Yes. <laughs> For by strength no man shall prevail. So that is the conclusion of the matter with respect to you and me. Since God is the sovereign power over life, over poverty and riches, it implies that by your strength and my strength, we shall not prevail in anything. God does not mean that we actually have strength to any level. He is the Almighty, and so He possesses all power. He has left us with no power. What power we exercise is given us on the day and to the level that we need it. We are poor and weak, and even more, there's no man who prevails in salvation by the power of their strength, not by the power of their will 
of their own law obedience. Ultimately, that's the larger point. No man ever came to Christ by their own will and power of decision. The Bible says they are made willing in the day of his power. They are taught of God and they are drawn to Christ by the Father. God does all these things. In Arminianism, which is the free will salvation, I chose, I decided. And their whole tower of Babel project will not prevail. That's what God is saying. You cannot prevail in the matter of salvation by your own strength. That scheme of living salvation that exalts the strength of man, that leaves eternal strength, sorry, that leaves eternal spiritual matters in the hands of men and women to determine, to reject or to accept is just not true. And so, to the conclusion of things in judgment, verse 10, that is our last verse, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. All the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. That is the end. And in what way Jesus said this of himself in Luke 20, 17 and 18. What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. All adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. And Jesus says, whoever the stone falls on shall be ground to powder. So Christ is saying he is that stone and he is claiming deity for those who had ability to connect things. So the Lord will judge the ends of the earth and it is Christ. Because he said after the resurrection, all power and authority has been given to me power and authority and judgment given to Christ. So what we need to understand here and now is that strength does not belong to men. Joe Biden and company do not have strength at all. They may think they have strength in the White House, but they have none. They have zero. Because God has given strength to his king and has exalted the horn of his anointed, of his Messiah, of his Christ. And beloved, that is the Christology of Hannah's prayer. It was a gospel proclamation of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I had a whole lot of other things to say, but I was like, I'm not going to come back and do part two. But if you want to go and read Luke 1, 46 to 55, 
you're going to see that Mary borrowed a hymn of praise from Hannah. They are very close similarities. She had a lot of inspiration from Hannah. And those other texts that I was going to do from the Psalms, I don't remember now if it was Psalm 38, and connected to this teaching, but I thought that may have gone for too long. But God be praised for all that he's given us to hear and understand today. Let's go before him in prayer and thank him. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many words that you've given us to glean about Christ from the story of Hannah, from the beauty and simplicity of the prayer and how ultimately it connects to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his humiliation, his condescension, and also his glory in the work of our salvation knowing that he now has a house full of children because he redeemed them to God by the shedding of his blood. We thank you for those whom you gathered around to hear the message. May you continue to bless them. We honor you, glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good people. <laughs> thank you for tuning in. I hope God bless you. We preach to the glory of God. We don't preach to time. I have to speak that which God has given me whilst I have ability, whilst I have strength. Right now, I have strength. We could start another message and go for another two hours. Okay? <laughs> it's God-given strength, so God be praised. All right, you have a wonderful rest of the day and week ahead. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.